Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John Farrell, you have the story out from Credit Suisse, and basically what this is about is a ETN, a VIX product, moving from 110 to 15. Yeah, it's a short volatility product. So basically, Credit Suisse has two of these exchange-traded notes that basically mirror the inverse performance of the of the volatility index, what we call the VIX time. So quite clearly, as the VIX has exploded from like 8 in January to 50 on the screen at the moment, these exchange-traded notes have been absolutely hammered. The big question now is whether they actually consider a redemption of the volatility note. And what we understand, according to a person familiar with the situation, is that Credit Suisse are indeed doing that, which is why I'm really happy to say that Dean Kernard is with us. Credit Suisse, the stock down like almost 4% on my screen, was as low as 8.5%. There is some serious concern out there about what this means. So let's drain some of the drama, Dean, and help us understand what a redemption of this volatility note actually means, the mechanics of it. Well, I think the first thing to note is that the losses that people experienced in being, let's say, long the XIV at a price of 110, whether the note is redeemed or not, those losses, nearly 100%, uh, will be materialized. So again, if it if the note goes away and it effectively is unwound at zero or close to zero, um, obviously you have a 100% loss, but uh, whether or not the note hangs on and they choose not to redeem it, you're going to have a price that is so low uh, and a uh, exposure to volatility that is so small that the losses are going to be near 95% anyway. Dean, if we got an idea of the size of the short vol trade, how big it actually got, through last year, it, it rewarded you handsomely, like yeah. returns north of 100%. And the flows into these exchange-traded notes, even through January, were huge. They were record months for some of these individual particular funds. How big is this trade? Yeah, th this is the thing about markets is that winning trades uh, attract sponsorship, <laughs> they attract attention, uh, and they get crowded. Uh, and uh, no trade has delivered a yeah. better sharp ratio in, in previous periods than the, sh the short vol trade. Uh, and so I think a lot of folks got involved. Um, the, the, the vega, so the exposure to volatility that the XIV and the other product SVXY had was on the order of 200 million uh, dollars. Uh, so to just to put that in context, when, when long-term capital blew up in 1998, we learned after the fact that it had a short volatility position that was equivalent to $80 million of exposure per volatility point. Um, this one uh, right now uh, had exposure of $200 million uh, per point. So when, when the VIX spikes 15 points or so, um, it, it uh, well, you lose $3 billion. Can I translate that, that not inflation adjusted, it's three times bigger than the size of the LTCM compare you're doing? Right. And I think what's, again, what's so prominent about this particular right. blow up is that the, the selling of volatility was very, very much concentrated right. in very short term right. selling. So right. they were selling one month options, which can be uh, very profitable when realized volatility is very low, but also... Uh, as we have seen, uh, can be unwound right. in violent fashion. Compare, and maybe Bruce, you could help out here as well, but Dean Kernick, compare the drug of the new product, the short vol trade, with the drug of portfolio insurance, which we all studied or lived in 1987. Is it just, you know, different products, same dynamics? I, I would just say that uh, there's a lot of similarity. Uh, the 
portfolio insurance was marketed as a product in which you could effectively insure uh, stocks, yeah. but you didn't have to pay a premium uh, for doing so. Uh, and uh, what was portfolio insurance was a dynamic strategy where folks uh, convinced uh, investors that they could sell futures as the market fell in order to uh, get a larger and larger short position to hedge the portfolio. And so what that does is it creates a pile-on effect. As the market falls, this is back to 1987, yeah. the portfolio insurers found themselves selling more and more. Um, in this case, as the VIX rose, the VIX ETPs, the XIV, for example, had to buy more and more VIX futures to deliver this inverse daily return. And so it was a spiraling effect. More uh, rising volatility beget more demand for VIX futures, which further uh, increased uh, the level of the VIX, which further created more demand for VIX futures. It was a spiral higher. Higher vol begets higher vol. Futures coming off the lows, it's worth pointing out. Down futures now down 176. S&P 500 futures, negative nine. So a couple of questions I've got for you, Dean. One, can we officially say that the short vol trade has blown up? And two, and this is terribly difficult to get your hands around at this point, and it could take months, even years, to understand what's happening in the cash open this morning and through the equity market session yesterday. But how much of what we're seeing on the screen is forced selling from a short vol trade blowing up? A tremendous amount. I think this yesterday's event is truly a VIX event. Uh, it is a very, very specific technical unwind of something that was vastly crowded, uh, pretty misunderstood. Uh, by a lot of retail investors, unfortunately. Uh, so so it is pretty concentrated. So so the VIX event has occurred. Yeah. Um, I think a big question, Jonathan, is um, there are many other uh, trades that have characteristics similar to the VIX. They make money in stable, quiet markets. Uh, right. There are, there are FX strategies, there are bond strategies like this. Uh, and so the VIX event has occurred, but there could be well, larger market implications. Dean Kernett will stay with us. Bruce Kasman, thank you so much. Thanks to J.P. Morgan for letting you free for two hours today. Bruce Kasman is the chief economist of J.P. Morgan. If you believe, as you have heard every interview this morning, that the pros are watching bonds, this is without question the interview of the day. Stephen Major is at HSBC. He has been brilliant on saying, no, rates aren't going up, aren't going up, aren't going up. Yes, sometimes he's perfect, sometimes he's almost perfect, but he's been dead on about the rates lower Call. He joins us now from London with HSBC. Stephen, wonderful to have you on away from your clients in this tumult. Do you have any sense of adjustment where you would suggest rates could move higher? Well, I'm following the forward rates, Tom, and I think the U.S. five-year rate in five years' time got above 3% recently, which is basically saying the bond market was pricing the Fed going all the way to its long-term dot of 275. So bonds had got cheap at the end of last week. Um, so that was the time to start considering bonds as an insurance policy against something going wrong. And something went wrong this week. We're seeing risk assets mm -hmm. reprice, and, and you've mentioned the VIX. I mean, for, for me, the shoe is on the other foot. What does so that after mean? a couple of months. Well, we've had a couple of months of people in the equity markets and credit markets looking at rates and saying that rates are higher and they're going to keep going higher. 
Um, and actually, I'm wondering what happens when equities go down to sovereign bonds. And we're seeing that now. We're actually seeing risk assets reprice something more reasonable, having been overbought for some time. And I think bonds get bid. So we probably have seen the near-term highs for bond yields. Now, I know it's not very fashionable to say, but um, you're supposed to own bonds, especially long-term bonds. I can't imagine that the 30-year bond is going to sustain a move above 3%. And like I said, when you look at the forward, the five-year, five-year forward, anything near to 3% for that one is a buy. So there's two things going on here, Steve. And you mentioned the Fed's ability to get to its long-term dot one. And then two, you talk about this safety bid that comes back into Treasury. So let's talk about the second point first, and then we'll get to the Federal Reserve point. On the second point, we've had this regime where bonds and equity have moved simultaneously, yields lower, equity prices Mm. up. Are you saying that regime is done and we're moving to something else? Well, it looks like we're going to have to go through a period of transition, uh, John. And it's, it's not obvious to me that we have to have any kind of correlation because you, why, why should it be so easy? It's, it seems to me that we've had several months of a one-way street, so bond yields going up and equities rallying. But of course, something is broken here. And I, I think that we are seeing a repricing of risk versus risk-free. People talk about the risk parity trade, etc. For me, it makes sense to own some bonds as an insurance against something going wrong, as we have just seen. So, so I think the correlations are breaking down. And what's happening to the VIX must be quite scary because that has to be input into all the models. People now have to reappraise their assumptions about credit, for example. What does this mean for high-yield credit, I wonder? And we'll, and we'll start asking questions about some of the emerging markets as well. So, so it's the read-across to other asset classes that really matter from the move in the bond yield. So let's talk about that re-evaluation of risk assets versus the risk-free asset. Steve, so far, the only risk asset that's repriced dramatically is equity. We haven't seen it in high-yield credit. We've seen it a little bit, spreads a wider, but not in a significant way. Are you suggesting that we could see it in the coming days, the coming weeks? It started in European high-yield this morning. Obviously, investment grade is protected by central bank buying in the eurozone. So it's, it's, it's difficult for IG credit to sell off aggressively when you've got central bank buying. But it's the high yield part that isn't so well protected. So mm-hmm. let's watch what happens when we input <clears throat> higher volatility to uh, spread markets where the spread's too tight. Stephen, the time that we have with you this morning, I want to get to something as basic as, 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 basic as we can get. You're suggesting yeah. that we can have stable yields or even lower yields with higher yeah. full faith and credit prices and still have risk assets like stocks go down. They can be that separate. Well, yes, I, I think that we could go through a period of decorrelation. And and to me, we're we're probably oversimplifying if we think that there has to be a stable correlation between these asset classes. I mean, if it was so easy, mm-hmm. we'd all be making loads of money, wouldn't we? It has to be harder. And and I'll come back to the first point I made today about the Fed. The Fed is at one point five on IOER. They're telling us that they're gonna go to two point seven five over the next few years. That's a long way from here. 
Well, critically, Steve, Steve, this is critical. You have been more than anyone I know, you and Gary Schilling. I'll give Dr. Schilling. Good morning, Dr. Schilling, uh, as well. You, more than anyone at any major house, Steve Major, have said that path of the Fed is a difficult assumption. You stand by that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've taken a lot of heat for that in the last few months. And and, and the point the point is is that people don't want to believe it. But I think we're oversimplifying if we think that the Fed just carries on with its eyes closed and arrives at two seventy five because you've got this huge debt overhang. And with with this massive debt, each basis point means much more than it did in the past. I mean, I would estimate that 100 basis points increase on the 10-year today, like we have seen since last summer, is worth about 300 basis points in in the regime of 20 years ago. So the point is, with this very high duration and high stock of private sector debt around the world, by the way, not just in the U.S., stuff happens. Stuff happens because people can't afford to service the debt, and it affects their consumption and investment. So, you know, the assumptions about GDP based on some kind of model that uh, sets the the path of rates seem to be missing the overhang of debt. And I think that the Fed's models have historically been at fault there because they they haven't taken account of the debt. And then we would overlay the impact of demographics and technology, all of which are weighing down on inflation. That's why bonds are in better shape. So, Steve, your essential point here is that this economy, the global economy for that matter, just does not have the tolerance for the kind of rates that some people are suggesting we'll get to with the Federal Reserve. My basic question at this point is that the Fed has carried on hiking, even though inflation through much of last year trended lower. So what's the bite point for Mm. the Federal Reserve to sit back and say, we're doing too much? Well, that's the interesting one. We're sort of finding out, aren't we? Um, The the debt servicing costs that we look at um, are based on the forwards and some assumption on the credit spreads. It strikes me that credit spreads are, or have been very tight. So it will be dangerous to assume that they're going to stay there. If you if you look at an average, mm-hmm. the triple B credit spreads, they're much wider. Can we afford the debt servicing costs that a mean reversion of credit spreads would imply? And the answer, I think, right. is probably no. Steve, we've got to leave it there uh, for you to get on to your busy day with HSBC. We greatly appreciate the time this morning. Mr. Major, of course, head of all of strategy with uh, HSBC. And, of course, he is someone who's adamantly said higher interest rates will be a challenge to get to. Last night, my world stopped at 7.30 while I waited on the Bloomberg terminal for exclusive use by our terminal customers of a Ponzikawa jewel on all that David Wilson has just talked about. Sarah Ponzik summarized perfectly what's going on in this VIX derivative market. Sarah, our, our ETF team this morning says it's a value of 2 to $3 billion. Let's take the top tick, $3 billion X number of weeks ago and all this short volatility stuff. Do you and Lukawa just assume that's all evaporated in the space of three or four days? Sadly, yes. I mean, there's someone who's at Macro Risk Advisors, he's an analyst, and he says that pretty much everything in these funds has blown up. There's maybe 5% of it left. Who takes that loss? Who takes that loss? Well, 
the investors are going to take the loss, but it also depends on what happens with the redemption. So right now, Credit Suisse, we don't have the final answer, but we're trying to figure out if they're going to take on the risk. Um, so I, right now, they're saying that this is what happens and this isn't too much of an implication for them. But I mean, they haven't come out with a statement. It seems a little bit dodgy. We're trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen here, damage-wise. Uh, Sarah, I'm wondering if you could just define for people exactly what these products are supposed to do and how new are they in terms of their availability to investors? So think about these products. In the past couple of years, we've had crazy calm in the market. So what these products do is you can bet on that tranquility staying, prevailing. So if you believe that markets are going to stay calm, they're not going to bounce around a lot, then you would you would buy these products. And you so mint money along the way, right? Like how much along the way? If it's a so-called carry trade, as you beautifully describe, What's the layup amount you make every year given, I love the word, tranquility? So the the um, XIV actually returned 187% in the past year. So depending on how much money you put into that product, you returned 187%. 10 12% a month. Right. Wow. It, it's absolutely astounding. But also something that's so amazing is how much new money is in these products that had to experience this. Since the beginning of the year, actually, over $2 billion has been put into XIV and then also the pro shares. Is, uh, it, is it retail or is it institutional money? It's, it's a combination of both, but it is a lot of retail money because a lot of people have just been told that if you put money into these shares, it's free money. You're you're going to make money and people have bought it and people have thought it's a really easy trade. I actually spoke to an investor, I remember a couple months ago, and he said that how he loved the trade and he would never <clears throat> right. let go of it. PIM yields out the new high six basis points on the 10-year yield, 2.76%. S&P futures have improved, negative eight. Dow futures have improved, negative 173 right now. Sarah, um, when you talk about volatility, just explain how it works in terms of how volatility can beget more volatility. Because when you have market turbulence, you're describing a whole set of investors who have been betting against that happening. Exactly. So what happens is when you explain the volatility or explain the VIX, it's basically the amount of movement that's going on up or down uh, within the stock market. So what happens is when the S&P 500 starts selling off, people start realizing, okay, there's more volatility coming into the market. People start selling more of their shares in the S&P 500. Or as we saw yesterday, people were talking about a flash crash. Algorithms start sharing, sharing. There's more movement. Volatility goes up. People want to unwind their short volatility trades and it just becomes completely exacerbated. And then there's no one on the other side of the trade, at least on the price that you would like to get out, just as it creates a negative feedback loop because you keep trying to find the price that someone else will pay for your, at least at that moment, poor investment. Exactly. There aren't many people on the other side of the trade. So like I said, there were about $2 billion that went into these short volatility <clears throat> trades just this year. If you compare that to how many people went long volatility towards the start of the year, that was just about $120 million. So that's a huge difference. And it's also sometimes sold as a way to mitigate risk, right? So it can be sold in a fashion that makes sense when markets are complacent, but well, when they turn the other way, not so much. We got to leave it there. Sarah Ponzik, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate thank it you. this morning. And congratulations. Look forward to your next work.
We are speaking with Alberto Gallo. He is the head of macro strategies at Algebras. Uh, Alberto, as uh, one of the managers of the uh, Algebras Macro Credit Fund, wondering if there is an opportunity for you in terms of what you might be looking to purchase as a result of all of this dislocation. What kinds of investments would you be looking to, uh, to add or even to sell from the fund? Well, I would say that the biggest dislocation is in uh, volatility. So the funds that have been selling volatility, betting on the world would stay the same, have been um, uh, compressing volatility to really, really low levels in the last few months. Today, what we saw is an unwind of these strategies today and yesterday, bringing uh, volatility levels to record highs. Uh, so this is an opportunity. Um, obviously, one has to be careful because th- we don't know how much of the of these strategies uh, are still still need to be unwound. Um, across the rest of the space, we saw some declining equities, some declining corporate bonds, but we're not at levels where one wants to spend all the ammunition. Uh, we have a small correction, um, but uh, you know we could see more, especially the corporate bond world has been extremely stable this time around. Well, just looking at the VIX right now, thank you, John Tucker. Uh, the VIX is uh, lower 35%. It's down 13.14 at 24.18. Uh, Alberto, if you look across Europe, uh, what has been the response in Europe, at least in investors' terms, uh, to what has happened in the United States? I would say the European market is more stable. Um, this is perhaps one of the few times where Europe is uh, not as volatile, and I think the reason is that much of this financial leverage um, was absent from uh, European markets. Uh, the the uh, presence of levered strategies of, on VIX, on, on other types of uh, uh, short volatility is much uh, lower uh, here in Europe. Um, and therefore, the uh, unwind effect, uh, the self-fulfilling feedback loop, uh, we haven't seen it as much. And as far as specific country debt, uh, I notice in the fund big uh, holdings in the Kingdom of Spain. Uh, is that for any specific reason other than this was what was available at the yield that you could get? Or what was the reason for adding so much from Spain? Well, yeah, we're still positive on, um, we've been positive on the European periphery, Spain, Italy, Greece, Portugal. I would say that um, today we are most positive on Greece. We continue to see a path to upgrades. When it comes to Spain and Portugal, these are more established growth stories, you know, both growing uh, over 2% this year, uh, getting upgraded by rating agencies, uh, but lower yields. The two unlocked countries in Europe are, are Greece and Italy, uh, and they are, they've been lagging on reforms and growth, but this year Greece is growing at over 2.5% real GDP, and Italy is growing at over 1.5%. Um, so with some reforms, with some fiscal stimulus, with uh, Merkel and Macron in France and Germany, I think the backdrop is right. positive. These are one of the, some of the few places to hide in the debt market. What are you doing this morning? I mean, I've got yields round trip from lower yields by two or three basis points to now up a solid seven basis points, higher yields, lower note prices. 
The dollar's stronger. Even gold is reversed and is lower by $2. I've got green on the screen. The Dow up 150, S&P up. The VIX is down to an Alberto Gallo column of 22.61. What does a guy like you do, Alberto? Do you just go to lunch or are you going to actually do something? No, we are glued to our uh, screens. And what we're focused on is the changing correlation across the market. What, so what we're trying that? to understand... Yeah, yeah. We're trying to understand if interest rates are stabilizing. Uh, this is a move, this is a repricing that started with interest rates moving higher. Uh, you know, until the last few months, investors relied on a stable and low interest rate environment on the assumption that central banks would keep that environment. And therefore, investors were buying bonds for capital gains and equities for yield. Uh, this has changed. Now we're close to normalization. We have inflation coming back in the U.S. and Europe, and this means a lot of assumptions have to be revised across the uh, equity and, and bond space. Uh, and some investors have been uh, too levered. Uh, so what we're trying to understand is, um, you know, in a risk-off environment, normally rates rally. People buy treasuries, but actually today treasuries are widening. And this means that the risk-off environment can continue, that the repricing can continue. So we're very careful about interest rate moves, especially in the long end of the curve, in the 10 to 30 year space. So you're bringing in your duration, you're shortening your bets because you're worried about the volatility far out the curve? We are positioned, uh, we're still positioned for rising interest rates. Yes, yeah. we're okay. positioned for potential repricing in the long end of the curve, which would be great for fixed income investors, pension right. funds, insurance companies, but it also means they buy less stocks and they buy more bonds. Okay, Alberto Gallo, thank you for the briefing this morning. A great, uh, on short notice, I should say, this is near 4 p.m. his time uh, in uh, Europe. Mr. Gallo is with Algebras today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.